0: Welcome to episode 101 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. Not much. Just living the life, living the dream. How about you?
0: I can't think of any other better cliches than that, so
1: yeah, I'm gonna I, stick with that. I, I, we probably should stop asking each other what's up <laughs> since we never have an answer. I mean, what's somewhere, up is we're we're podcasting, so yeah, I was gonna say somewhere
0: up. people are screaming, "Stop! Just yeah. stop!" So, yeah. with that being said, let's break into some affirmations and denials
1: right up the top here. Let's do it. I'm gonna cheat a little bit and do two affirmations in one denial. I'll allow it. So my first affirmation um, is sort of like a backhanded denial. So if you remember a little (laughs) while back, I I affirmed Mint for like bill pay. And then uh, Mint decided to do the thing that Google does where they set up this really awesome service. And then for no explained reason whatsoever, they just get rid of it. Those and weasels. leave you totally in the lurch. So um, my backhanded denial is that Mint is stinks for that. It's still a really good platform for like general finance monitoring and stuff. But I found today a platform called Prism. Have you ever heard of this?
0: I have heard of this. Yeah. So
1: Prism is basically more or less it's just the bill pay part of of Mint. It's it's not run by Mint. It's not run by Intuit or anything. But it's it's just the bill pay version. Um, or section of mint. So I, I loaded all my bills in there. I started looking at it. It pulls your bank information in. It's it's the same as the mint bill pay. It's just a really good substitute. But what's cool about it, I was doing a little bit of research. They do their um their bill pay a little differently. And I think you and I were talking about this. I think the reason Quicken probably stopped doing it is because they were what they were doing is they were taking money out of your account and then they were cutting a check or sending a bill pay. And so it was costing them money to do that. But the right. way Prism does it is it's actually just a portal login to your own online portal. And so there's no like bill pay. They're not sending anything to, your, to the biller. They're just basically logging into the website on your behalf and doing the transaction on your behalf. So what's cool about that is it doesn't cost them anything. So in the long run, it's not going to cost me anything. But also... Um, you can set up payments and they can establish those like real quick. Like you can set up a payment for 10 minutes from now where like other bill pay services, usually there's like a lead time of two or three days for you to to submit it because they have to send a paper check over. So Prism, uh, look it up. It's really cool. Use the same like encryption from what I can tell as your standard bank encryption. So it's all secure and and very reputable.
0: That's good stuff right there.
1: Yeah. So what's your affirmation?
0: This is going to be, Awesome, because we've got like a serious diversity in probably all our affirmations and denials today. I'm commending a particular piece of punctuation called the interrobang.
1: Oh, I've which, heard of this.
0: Which, yeah, I came across like a number of years ago, but for some reason totally forgot about and just found it again recently. And I, I think we should all adopt this. So the interrobang is a com- combination of the function of a question mark or interrogative point and an exclamation mark which if you've done any kind of coding, coders often call the exclamation point, the bang. So it's as if, and everybody should look this up, in tarot bang, E-I-N-T-E-R-R-O-B-A-N-G. It's as if a question mark and an exclamation point got together and had a love child. It would be this. So it's basically a question mark superimposed over an exclamation point with them both sharing the point. And it's basically used for when the question is more important than the answer. But I think like in our age of really brief snippets of text, how awesome is this little thing? Like have you I do you ever write like a question mark and an exclamation point on something? Yeah, no, all the time.
1: Head, no. no, I do all the time. <laughs> I thought you were saying no. Like I I do not know what you're talking all about. All my but. questions are very measured. They're very No, I, I do that all the time. It's like an angry question is what it is. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. So like, how- like
1: how in, do you make in, the interrobang on your keyboard?
0: So this is what I was getting around to is I don't know if you can. So I'm sure you can. To, we need to get that action going on because I want it. I want it on my phone, but I don't know if there's a way to do it.
1: I'm sure there's a way to do it on a keyboard.
0: It's just going to take me a minute to find it. Some special kind of combination of keys, but it's just a super fun thing. And also just the name of it, Intero bang is awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what the alt key on your keyboard is for. Right. You can do alt. You hold alt and you push a bunch of codes, like a bunch of numbers and then release the alt and it'll give you a it's like a special
0: symbol of code.
1: Yeah. So like if you want to do the M dash, which is like that longer dash, it's alt 0151 one, one is as the, the M dash. Um, so I'm assuming there's probably an Interobang code for that. I just don't know what it is. I have no idea, but we need to get somebody on that. I'm on it right now, so <laughs> if you can can uh, stall for a second here. Yeah,
0: so let me go on to my denial then, which okay. I can use in a tarot bang with if I were writing it out. And that is, it's summarizing this question. What's up with the non-standard sizing in some men's clothing in the same brand? So oh. I, I'm sure like my sisters in Christ are not going to have any empathy for me here because my understanding is shopping for women's clothes is way more difficult than men's. With that said, Dockers pants have decided that you know whatever the length you choose, that is your size. Guaranteed that in one of their pants, it's going to be the wrong one. So I'm just denying against this weird non-standard sizing in the same brand for the same article of clothing. Have you come yeah. across that?
1: I have or is not. It just me. Uh, maybe it's just you. Maybe there's like spies that are sneaking in and like changing out the size on the pants. No, I, I've never run into it, but. Really? I, I I do get frustrated. I'm sort of a short guy, but I'm also sort of a wide guy. Not like fat, but like wide. So for me, it's really hard to shop for pants. It's really hard because I can like find a pair of pants in one brand that fits right, like fits perfectly, and then not in another. Or like Old Navy has – you can get like a 33 or 34-inch waist. But it, like you can't get a 29 inch inseam with a 33 inch waist, which is like That's what I true. which is what I need. So I resonate. I haven't run into that specifically though.
0: I mean combinations are one thing, but this is uh, just I have a pair of pants that is the normal sizing that I've always worn, and just this one pair, this one style rather, is way longer, like way longer. I look like I don't know, I'm like wearing parachute pants, or I'm trying to be. I don't know. Like I want to do a MC Hammer video. I don't know.
1: I, there's so many things that I want to say about that and I'm not even sure. I would love to see you do the MC hammer dance. I would pay money to see you do the MC hammer dance.
0: Tell me that you've got denial that can get us out of this.
1: I do, but I want to do my quick second affirmation before we do my denial. So I want to affirm a podcast that's called theology gals. Have you ever heard of this podcast? Yeah, definitely. So theology gals is, um, two, or three women who do this podcast. And it's just a really good, solid podcast from a reform perspective. But they tend, it's not exclusively like women, quote, women's issues, but they tend to focus on things not only from a perspective of a woman, which is, I think, really valuable in the world of reform podcasting, because there's just not a lot out there. But also they, they focus on things that are I don't want to say uniquely applicable to women, but are particularly applicable to women. So um, for example, they talked about like raising children, which is certainly applicable to men, but it's a totally different, kind of discussion when you're talking about a mother versus a father. Um, but then also what I love about it is there's such a lack of good theology podcasts and good theology teaching books, seminars, all this stuff um, that's really oriented for women. So this is just a great show it's called Theology Gals. You can find it on any podcatcher, um, iTunes anywhere you need to, you know, you look for podcasts you can find it. Um, and it's just really really good. They're just about to do a, I think it's going to be two parts, maybe three but they're just about to do a, a multi Multiple part uh, series on the federal vision, um, and I know they've. I think they've got some guests lined up. So check it out; it's really great.
0: It's a good co- podcast. I've listened to it. You're right; it's a great perspective, and it's not just about like pink issues in the Bible. Right. It's wonderful to hear from sisters in Christ yeah. about all manner of topics that are relevant in the Reformed faith with their particular v- viewpoint. That's super valuable, and we really should affirm more women. I think speaking in those terms, generating conversation. I know that's something that my wife wishes there was more of. Is Not necessarily subdividing everything into, well, this is a man's issue and this is a woman's issue, but us getting together and talking and having more of their voices involved, I think, is really profitable. So what's your denial?
1: So I am denying the practice of car sales. So this is like one of those first world problems Uh, kinds of denials, but Ashley and I both recent, as you know, both recently received, um, rather sizable promotions at work, which we are very, very thankful for. Congratulations. Um, And one of the, thank you. One of the benefits of that is we have been a one car family and we've been carpooling, which is fine and we've enjoyed it. And, uh, it, but it presents challenges. So now we have the blessing of being able to go back up to a second car. So we've been doing the car shopping thing for a couple of weeks. And so we literally knew what car we wanted. We already had the deal written up. All we had to do is go in and have them drop the paperwork and sign it. And it still took two and a half hours. There, there was no haggling. There was no like financing questions. All of that was done already. Everything was set. I literally walked in and I said, we will take that car you were look- we were looking at the other day. Give us the paperwork to sign. And it still took right. them two and a half hours. Um, so uh, it's just – and it's funny because we were leaving and I think the guy could tell we were frustrating. And he actually said – You know, buying a car is always a really crappy experience. So thank you for sticking with me. And I, you know, I was trying to be polite. I was like, yeah, it can be frustrating. He's like, no, it's always frustrating. And I want to be like, you know, you have the power to do something about that. Um, But it it just, it just is. And I don't know why that is. I'm not sure.
0: You bring up an interesting point, though, because now I'm thinking back the last several cars I purchased, and you're right. It does take a long time. It's almost like once you get to that point where you've done all the haggling and you say, yeah, we're ready. That's great. We'll give you, you know, we'll do the financing. We'll give you the the whatever we owe you. It's almost like at that point, they're like, ah, we've never actually gotten this far before. Let me go see what we have to do to make that happen.
1: Yeah, there was all (laughs) sorts of weird stuff. So Ashley gets a discount um, through her employer and we we bought another car from them recently, and it they they didn't ask us for like a pin or a code. And then this time they're like, "Well, you need this pin." I was like, "We didn't need the pin last time." And then we were like, "Did we actually get the discount last time, or did you scam us?" So I made them show me the invoice from the last. It was just it was just a mess. And I mean, they got the 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 salespeople were all nice. They were all kind of doing their best like I'm not trying to impinge any particular salesperson or the profession of used of used or new car sales it's just I don't know why it is that it's so frustrating I get the impression that like buying a house probably is less frustrating than this I'm sure it's not but like all of the like horror stories you hear about like 1800 page documents to sign like that's what I felt like it just took forever for no good reason at all you would think
0: that once you get through the process of determining the vehicle, doing the test drive, negotiating all the prices and the insurance, everything else you want to add on top of that, that right. the that next part would be easy.
1: Right. But it's not.
0: It, it wouldn't take so much time. It would just be like, all right, here's the contract. Yeah. It's Boom. like, it never
1: is though. I don't, I don't understand.
0: What's up with that Interobang?
1: Interobang. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think that the Interobang probably is the perfect symbol to attach to the question, what the egg? <laughs>
0: <laughs> i, I feel like so. that's
1: right and we so we have to figure i looked the code that i found online it just comes out as an equal sign so something's not right somebody screwed up on uh, wikipedia yeah that's
0: underwhelming what the yeah, heck i know
1: what the egg interobang. bang
0: actually i feel like the tarot bang is the perfect punctuation for our topic this evening
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> would you say that's fair it is fair it's extremely fair
0: I mean, I don't know what the question would be explicitly, except what the heck is this? wrong? Yeah. What is wrong with
1: you? <laughs> that's that's what the question is. What is wrong with you, Arius?
0: <laughs> I love it. So obviously this is heresy casting. in case is. anybody was in the dark still about where we we're going today. But yes. W- so
1: what's on the agenda? So I want to share this image that I sent you. I have to kind of describe it because this is an audio medium. But it's it's a two-panel kind of comic. And the first is a little kid with Santa Claus, like a mall Santa Claus. And he walks up to him and he says, homoousios or homoousios. And the mall Santa says, what? And then the kid turns away and goes, you're not the real St. Nicholas. And so if you go back, we actually did an episode on St. Nicholas of Myra. So if you're wondering what the heck we're talking about, go back and listen to that. But more or less, the Aryan controversy was the first really big like ecumenical worldwide controversy in the church. Up until this point, you know, Marcionism was... A big deal, but it was primarily localized. Um, the same is, is true with like the Sibelians. You know, there's pockets of Sibelianism all throughout the, the the Christian world, but it was it was localized. The Aryan controversy, for a lot of historical reasons that we'll talk about, is the first time that the church has had ever come together as the whole church to settle a controversy since the Jerusalem council. So it's a really big deal. And the reason is because it deals with who and what Jesus is, the very nature of our savior. And, and because of that, it deals with questions of the nature of our salvation as well.
0: Right on. Yeah, this is basically like the rumble in the jungle, so to speak, in terms of the breadth and scope of all those coming together. It's almost odd, I think, from our vantage point, looking back historically to think that, one of the biggest items of theological debate among the early Christians was the subject of Christ's deity, but that's exactly what was at stake here. So it yeah. is a super big deal. And it still spills over like all the things we've been talking about. I think of that phrase from it's either Chesterton or Muggeridge. I don't know. One of the, some English dude with a great turn of phrase who said, there is no new news, only old news happening to new people. Yeah. And that's basically, of course, what heresy is. So like, how would you give like your elevator? I don't want to say pitch, but your elevator summary of Aaronism.
1: So, like, if the CEO of my hospital walks up and is like, hey, (laughs) can you give me a quick definition of Arianism? Um, I got to
0: get off of the third floor. I'm
1: 100% sure that's not going to happen. But if it were to happen, what I would say is that Arianism is a heresy which argues um, from the oneness of God, the, the utter oneness and simplicity of God, to say that because God is one and indivisible that Jesus cannot be the same God as the father. And so because he cannot be the same God as the father, he must be less than the father. So Arius um, argued that, that Jesus is divine, in that he bears the divine nature, but he, he bears the divine nature in a creaturely fashion. So it's not quite adoptionism. It's not as though, um, Jesus was a a regular human man and then was sort of like grace, specially with, with the divine nature and elevated to God. But he was created in a state of a, of a unique bearer who had the, the divine nature communicated to him in such a way that he, he was divine, but he was a creature. He was the first creature of God. And then all things through him were created. So Arius was very rooted in scripture. He, he was going back to passages like John 1. All of the passages we would go to to refute Arius, he was also using to support his position. Right. And so that, that actually becomes really important in the history of the church and in the history of how the church deals with heresy.
0: And as like kind of a tangent to something we've talked about before in my understanding, Arius' views basically represent the most extreme form of the schema called, you know, sub-subordinationism. Right. So, it, but it's like a really extreme sense. So, there's like, in this one sense, one of the distinctives is that he's denying the self-existence and eternality of the sun. And, but you're right. What's interesting about even that point is that he did not preclude pre-existence, but just that the sun was begotten timelessly eons before, And then that second point, like you said, that he denied basically that the sun is equal, even consubstantial with God. So he was a creature. And this is where you're going to find, I'm sure we'll talk about this, like crossover with all kinds of other current and contemporary cults that would make the same claim.
1: Yeah. And even, I mean, we'll we'll get there, but not even just the cults. Some voices in our, um, in our reformed tradition are articulating things that come dangerously close to Arianism in a, in a whole host of ways. So we'll, we'll get to that, but uh, you know, it's interesting that you talk about him being begotten timelessly because that's actually one of the main problems with Arianism is that because of the way simplicity works begotten timelessly actually doesn't, doesn't make sense. So I listened to a really great uh, lecture by James Dolezal, who wrote All That Is In God, which is just a phenomenal book. And and everyone should pick it up and read it. It's it's an inexpensive book. It's not super long, but it will make your head spin. Um, And he makes the point that what we call time is just the measurement of change between state A and state B. So you have, you have a beginning state, and then you have a, a subsequent state that's different, and the measurement of the, the change between, from one state to another, that's what we call time. So he, he marks out that you know even like um, what we call 24 hours, well, an hour is one twenty fourth of the rotational um, change in the Earth. So the the earth is in state A and then over the course of 24 hours it, it makes a rotation and one hour is just the marking off of one twenty fourth of those. And he goes through different kinds of um, time units and demonstrates the same thing. You know, a year or a day, a day is 1 365th or 366th-ish uh, increment as the sun or the earth moves around the sun. Right? And then we make other units of time to measure that. So in in eternity past, if we have a a moment, uh, moments, not the right word, but it's the only thing I've got. If we have a moment where the sun was not, and then we have a moment where the sun was, then that already implies time. So Augustine was, was quick to say that time was the first creature because there's, there's time is created the second there's a change of states in anything. So in God, there's no time because there's no changing of states. But as soon as there's a creation, there's now a change in the state such that time obtains. So so Arius is saying that, and he'll say there was when he was not. A lot of times right. English translators will um, they'll add the word time to try to smooth that out. But Arius did not use the word time there. And he was trying to avoid saying there was a time when Christ was not because he also recognized that time is a created thing. So to say there was a time when Christ was not means that time preceded Christ. But that's not what he wanted to say. So, so he inconsistently held that time was something created by the logos, um, even though, as I just said, according to divine simplicity and things like that, that's not really a possibility.
0: Either way, we run into the issue where the son was a creature and, you know, the father was the creator. So, consequently, they were totally unlike in substance, which gets back to that funny little comic that you were referencing right. before. And and that's the really big deal here.
1: Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, the... the Arian party and the Orthodox party were both appealing to the scriptures in order to justify their claim. And so there was a series of sort of drafts of a creed that the Orthodox expositors were writing to try to write a creed that the Arians could not affirm. And so they, they tried various creeds that were based on scriptural language. And the Arians were like, yeah, I can affirm that. And they just said, I can affirm that but in their own mind, they were using the words differently. They were understanding the passages right. differently. And so that's where we get to the term homoousios versus homoiousios, right? And the word homoousios, which you said earlier in a, an anglicized version of the Latin as consubstantial, which means of the same nature. That is a word that does not appear in scripture. And so the church literally had to invent a word. This is the first, as far as I know, the first known instance of this word is in the original Nicene Creed. They invented this word to indicate that the son was not just of the same kind of nature, was not of a similar nature, which is at homoiousios. he was of the exact same nature. Now, it's important, if you go back and listen to our Trinity episode, it's important to note that it's not a generic unity. It's not that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three instances of the same kind of nature, but they're a threefold repetition of the exact same single nature. And so so the early church, that sameness of nature in this context is not just a, um, a similarity or an identicalness of kind but an actual unity of number. It's one nature, not not multiple natures of the same kind. Where later in some of the creed of formulations, they use homoousios to reference that generic unity. So we're of one nature with Christ, right? The, the Chalcedonian def- definition says, um, according to manhood, he's homoousios with us. Um, they're using that in a different sense. And in this instance, this is where I'm saying we get into this. And I'll just throw my cards out on the table the the eternal functional subordination position is a form of modern day Arianism. It's not as extreme in terms of um, in terms of explicitly calling the Son a creature, but the implication of the Son being subordinate to the Father um, in the eternal past is Aryan in nature. It actually does end up resulting with a functional denial of divine simplicity on a whole a whole host of levels, None, uh, not the least of which is that Christ ends up being, in effect, a creature of God because you have to have moment A, logical moment A or temporal moment A, where the son is not subordinate to the father even even if this is an eternal moment that somehow is it you know changes you have the son not being subordinate to the father because to be created subordinate to the father or to to always be subordinate to the father by function of nature which is what some of the EFS advocates will say Doug Wilson the Baileys different different groups that's an ontological subordination so in order to deny that what they have to say is there there's a logical moment where the son is not subordinate to the father and he willingly subordinates himself at moment two. So moment A, not subordinate. Moment B, subordinate. Well, what you've done then is you've you've created a change in the sun, meaning that even if he was divine, fully divine at moment A, he is now changed and now become less than divine. And as we've said in our Christology episode, if he becomes less than divine, it means he never truly was divine because to change is is foreign to the idea of divinity. Right. That's a good point. So we have to keep this in mind that, that although, you know, we ran into the same thing with like the Mars the, um, when we talked about Andy Stanley and Marcionism is that Andy Stanley is not saying there are literally two different gods between the old Testament and the new Testament, but he is saying that God fundamentally changes in his, his character between the old and the new Testament. And to say that God fundamentally changes in his character is either to say he's not God or to say that he's a different God. And if he's a different God, he's a different God. So if Christ is at moment A, not subordinate, and then at moment B, subordinate, we're talking about logical moments, then that postulates this this change of states. And as we said earlier from that Dahl's lecture, this change of states, that measurement between those change of states, that's what we call time. So the EFS advocate unwittingly introduces time into the economic trinity, into the ontological trinity, at intra. And that's just a huge, huge error to make.
0: Right. So basically what you're saying is, in the final analysis, to have sub- a subordinate ontological nature is to, at some point, inevitably presume separate substance, right?
1: right? Yeah. So that's there's a whole... There's a whole host of issues in the EFS camp, and all of them boil down to this functional denial of divine simplicity. And this functional denial of divine simplicity ends up with a plurality of natures. So sometimes you can go at it and you can say, well, there has to be a plurality of wills in order for the son to submit to the father. Well, a plurality of wills in the divine nature is, is a plurality of natures in the Godhead, and thus you have multiple gods. That's one way. To say there's a, a movement from state A to state because that movement also has to take place in the Father, right? In in moment A, the Father is um, is not sovereign over the Son. And in moment B, he is sovereign over the son. So there's not just a change in the son, but now there's a change in the st- in a change of state in the father as well. And the the way that this ties back to the Arian controversy is the logic that ultimately defeated the um, the Arians is the Arians would say, yeah, the the, the son is the word, and just like our word has to proceed from our mouth. And is is distinct from us, but still fundamentally the same as us. Right. Our words, our thoughts are not an entirely separate entity. So also the word of the father is created by the father's speech. Well, what what the response was, was, well, was there ever a time when the father was without his wisdom? Or was there ever a time that the father was without his son or without his power or without, you know, these because we'll, we'll talk about it in a later episode, but the same argument that happens with the son happens later in reference to the Holy Spirit. And so they would say, well, was there ever a time when the father was without his word or without his wisdom? And the Arian has to say, no, of course not. Well, their whole argument rests on the fact that the father eternally creates the son but you can't have that because then you've introduced these change of states. So this argument that I'm making about the change of subordination or subjection or submission in the Godhead in the EFS, it's the same argument that overcame um, overcame the Aryan controversy. Because we have to remember, the Aryans were saying, they were explicitly saying, and I think just because they were more aware of the implications, they were explicitly saying that the son is of a different essence as the father. Well, when you have Doug Wilson saying something like, the father is authority and the son is submission, you know, we've hammered on this in the past. Those are different essences, but they don't recognize that. But it's still the same movement that was happening with the Arians where they're saying, yeah, well, the son is a different essence because the father speaks him out. Well, that's introducing time into the equation. Well, in the EFS controversy, the son is of of a different essence because of the moment of submission, the logical moment of submission, which introduces these, these parceling out of moments in God. That's the same argument. So I don't know that we want to spend all our time on EFS because we've covered that extensively in the past and there's lots of great resources out there. But what are some other, um, I mean, obviously, if you have any more thoughts on that, we can go there too. But do you have any other sort of modern day heresies that you would say connects with um, Arianism?
0: I think that's the big one that, that leaped to my mind when I was thinking about this. But and this is going to be somewhat controversial. I want to be really careful about how I speak here, but I think there are other any time basically we put a place a lower emphasis on the efficacy of Christ and his sacrifice, I think tends to put take our necks and point it in the direction of Arianism, even if ever so slightly and so I see there that there's this sense that there is a d- different substance that that's what it implies when we say basically that the death of Christ was insufficient in some way, that there is some other, some other effort that must be brought to bring about salvation. And that might be a little bit unfair of me, but I, I tend to see that it's pointed in that direction. We're, we're making something lesser of the son than he actually is. And it's that consubstantial nature part that I always find problematic. I mean, you think that's unfair?
1: No, I think that's totally legit. So my patristics professor in uh, seminary was named Donald Fairbairn, and his doctoral dissertation was called Grace and Christology in the Early Church. And one of the the most insightful things that I've ever read about the early church and, and the early church heresies was that... Um, the Christology of a figure and their soteriology are not independent of each other. And on one level, I hope our listeners hear that and go, well, duh, of course, systematic theology, because that's like our right. wheelhouses. We're constantly calling out that you can't change one part of the system and not change the rest of it. But he he makes a really, um, I think, a really solid point that the Orthodox expositors, Even though we might disagree with certain elements of their soteriology, the Orthodox expositors hold a three-stage salvation, right? Man is created in a a state of integrity. He falls um, into a state of disintegrity or disrepair or or whatever. And then the son comes and rescues them out of that state of disintegrity, on the other hand, there was a movement in the early church that was sort of a two-stage act, where you have you have the creature that's created, and it's it's not not so much that they fall into sin that they need salvation from, but they need to be elevated from the state of creature to something else, um, and so the, the sin gets in the way of that; it slows that down. But ultimately, it's still about nature being made supernatural, right? right? And so um, in that model. You have things like Arius who are saying, yeah, well, the sun is an exalted creature and he shows us how to how to move from that state of nature to supernature. Or you have Nestorius saying, well, yeah, the sun is a man who's specially graced by the Holy Spirit or by union with the Logos. And so he shows us how to move into that state of supernature where people like Athanasius or Cyril of Alexandria or the Cappadocians who hold to an Orthodox Christology like I said we can we can quibble with some elements of their soteriology but for the most part their argument is this 383 three stage act. And so he made he made the point that the christology that's represented in a figure is either driven by their soteriology or drives their soteriology. And he demonstrates in the book that it goes both directions. But in the case of Arius we have a very strong um works righteousness element in his soteriology. Right. For Arius It was the son becoming – was the son who's a creature already who takes on a further creaturely status by becoming man and then shows us – he's a trailblazer. He shows us how to walk the path beyond our nature into supernature. Um, And that's a really big problem. And so we run into that in modern day with – honestly, Roman Catholic soteriology is just like that. It's It's not about being rescued from sin. We need that now. But Adam originally – had to work in order to obtain the supernature and this supernature would have brought him to a final state of the beatific vision where the Bible teaches and the reformed hold Adam was having the beatific vision on a regular basis, right? He walked with the Lord in the garden. Now the, the walking in the cool of the day, that's debated. I, I think that's probably a one-time event. That's about judgment, but Adam is not surprised by the fact that the Lord comes to the garden. So Adam was having the beatific vision on a regular basis. He wasn't surprised. He, he was seeing the Lord. Um, you know, that, that's a common position throughout the Bible, that the original state of integrity was a state of, of fellowship and union with God, not a state where we had to progress past it. Um, we, you know, the Reformed hold that Adam, had he passed his probationary period, would have moved into a permanence, into a permanence of the original righteousness he had. But the original righteousness Adam had would not have necessarily been approved upon it just would have been confirmed and and made immutable from where it was.
0: Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I I would even go so far to say sometimes I see a link between this kind of Aryan perspective and the governmental theory of of atonement. Yeah, absolutely. That there can be a lot of overlap there. And this just goes to your point of why it's so important to be thoughtful in every one of those three acts that you were saying, because they do influence each other. And getting one of those off the mark, will cause all kinds of problems in your whole theological spectrum, especially as you just take one piece and kind of pull it out to its its logical outworkings. So one of the things that you brought up that I think we should just talk about, because this is really good training for a lot of things, especially interacting with people that might hold this viewpoint, and not just Christians, but I'm thinking especially of Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. and even Mormons. But it seems to me the beauty of trying to refute our Ar- Arianism, almost an Arminianism, Arianism, <laughs> is that... It's basically totally different. It's basically sufficient uh, to find passages in the scriptures that really show that the son is fully God. Right. But there's just much as right to be called God as the father. So you brought up John's prologue, which we should just talk about. Because I think that's a great kind of introduction. And it's great because everybody's using it (laughs) to support their point, supposedly. So obviously the first verse in John reads, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So let me give you my take first on somebody that is like, only passingly familiar with Greek, but I think can still appreciate. <laughs> and then you can give us like the actual Greek since we've already got Latin and all kinds of other good stuff in this episode. So so that first verse, the beauty of it is the grammar and the original Greek in the text makes like this subordinationist interpretation impossible. And that's right. from somebody who doesn't even understand Greek. And I would encourage anybody, just go look this up in Greek. You can find it if you just Google it and say, show me John 1, 1 in Greek. And what you're going to notice, even if you do not speak the language or even know the characters is that the words in the sentence have like this perfect chasmic structure, and it's lost in English. So the second half of each sentence always is repeated as the first half of the next sentence. So you can think of it like a transitive property. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And that's what's really present here. And of course, it harkens back to Genesis 1 using in the beginning. And then if the word was with God in the beginning, then of course, Arius' claim that there was a time before the sun existed is totally refuted. And then even, I guess it's like 14 verses later, 13 verses later, John clearly identifies that the word that he's referencing in verse one, which he's made clear by drawing that transfer property, is he says that word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And then he he refers to that word receiving glory, which of course is something unique that only God himself receives. So I think this is particularly important because if, if a JW comes to your door and they say, no, 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 you misunderstood let me get out you know, the Watchtower version of this text and bring it before you. If you don't understand something about the Greek, even just in kind of a slight way, it's going to be hard to have this conversation. Um, what, what say you about that?
1: Yeah. So I, I really like what you said about the, the word order in the Greek um, being lost in the English. So So let me, I'm doing this on the fly. So if anyone is listening and they read Greek and they want to just just scream at me, then please forgive me. (laughs) But if if I'm translating it literally and trying to preserve the words, I'm going to sound a little bit like Yoda, I think. Um, It says in the beginning was the word and the word was toward or with God and God, the word was. So it's important, you know, it's literally God was the word, but because of the Greek and the way English does its subjects, God, the word was. That, that right there encapsulates it, right? God, the word was, and, and and it's, it's important for us to, to note that. And actually I think I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that thinks every Christian needs to learn Greek. Although I think it would be great if everybody, everybody learned Greek because it, it just is a really helpful skill, but every Christian who has a possibility of interacting with a Jehovah's witness, which is all of us in the United States would do well to actually understand and learn the Greek of this. um, because I don't want to go into all of the nitty-gritty but it's a common commonly known fact that the the Jehovah's Witnesses in their translation supply a an indefinite article that is not right. present in the Greek. Now, that's not necessarily in itself a bad thing because there is no indefinite article in Greek and English has an indefinite article. So everywhere that we put an indefinite article which is an a or an an um, we have to supply it. But what they translate is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. So not only do they supply an indefinite article, but they actually convert a definite article, which would be the or the, they supply and convert a definite article into an indefinite article. So it's, it's not even just that they add a word that's not there. They actually change a word. And what's really interesting is if you, if you go, it's hard to do this because they're not super forthcoming about what they're looking at. But I actually was interacting with a Jehovah's witness um, who was talking to me about the Greek tradition, the, the Greek new Testament tradition that they use when they're translating. They don't use a different – trans. it's not like they have a manuscript that lacks the article. So they they just straight up distort it. So pick up a good commentary on um, John. DA Carson, um, his commentary on John is good. There's a little bit of squirrely EFS stuff in there in some of it, but this part of it is really solid. And read it and understand it or just go to um, CCEL, pick up – you can look at Matthew Henry or John Calvin. All of them will talk about the grammar of this. It would do our, our listeners well to spend time really digging into this. And if if someone out there wants us to spend more time than this actually going through the grammar, um, call us on Question Cast and we'll be happy to, I'll be happy to go through it. We'll even try to put together some pictures and stuff to put up on the website. Um, I'm not James White, though, so I'm not going to do like the screen flow thing or, or anything like that. But um, give it a shot. It, it's, a, it's a good thing for Christians to learn. If you love Greek grammar, <laughs> this is your
0: podcast. I do love me to look some Greek any grammar. Any further. Any further, but you're right because in all my conversations with JWs, this ultimately comes up and if you if they sense that you have a strong understanding of this, I don't know what your experience has been Tony, but they almost immediately back down.
1: Yeah, I have a funny story about that if you want to hear it. I'd uh, always want to hear
0: funny stories about you and Jehovah's Witnesses.
1: So, I was at the local Panera in, uh, the next town over. And I was reading, um, I think I was reading NT, Wright New Testament, the people of God. It's the first in his big, massive, like four volume, five volume series or whatever. Um, and I was reading it. And this, this very nice woman, she had, it looked like she had a couple kids. She was there with another woman there having coffee. This very nice woman looked over and she said, Oh, is, is that about the Israelites? And I said, well, you know, he talks a little bit about that, but it's really about the church. She goes, oh, okay, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness and, and, you know, we we call our churches kingdom halls. I was like, oh, okay. So she started (laughs) talking to me and and eventually it always comes around to John 1 because, you know, I said, well, the Bible really clearly teaches that Jesus is, is fully God in the same way that the Father is. And I said, you know, and I quoted John 1 and she goes, well, actually... The proper translation is John is the word was a God. And I said, oh, okay. well, let me grab my Greek New Testament real quick. I've got it in my backpack. And she looked at me and it really looked like she was going to puke. And she (laughs) went, she went, excuse me. And I said, oh, I, I read Greek. I just finished seminary. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at Greek. I still am pretty sharp at it. Let me grab my Greek new Testament and I can explain it to her. So I actually went through the whole thing and I explained all the grammar and I said, here's the, you know, here's what it is. Here's why we translate it this way. Here's, here's other examples of similar grammatical constructions in the new Testament where we don't, we don't change a definite article to an indefinite article. I said that the watchtowers translation, the new world translation doesn't do that. So I said, you know, I said, and beyond that, all of the people who wrote your translation, none of them knew Greek. So I'm not sure why they thought that this was the way it was. Um, so that was just, it was funny. She really looked like she was going to like throw up or poop her pants or something. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> she
0: just grabbed like a bacon turkey Bravo and ran out of ran. Yeah.
1: She she threw my, <laughs> my caramel latte at me and bolted.
0: <laughs> but this is why it's so important to know the scriptures. And also why we talk about this in the context of heresy, because I had a similar interaction with some visitations from some Mormons. And what we ended up going, because Mormons believe, of course, that basically Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. Right. So there's some all, all kinds of overlap here. And so we ended up looking at Matthew 26, and that's where Jesus makes this affirmation of his divinity right before the, his crucifixion. And it's the immediate cause of the charge of blasphemy. Right. And Matthew 26, 64 reads, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, we were talking about, and I was trying to lead them through these passages because we were saying, I was saying, you know, Jesus is putting together passages from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And taken individually, those passages can be somewhat ambiguous. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 seems generally to refer most directly to the people of Israel. And in Psalm 110, when the Lord says, Sit at my right hand, that meaning is metaphorical. But here's what's brilliant Jesus, in quoting those both together, he's taking these two passages and he's interpreting it to mean, like, he is the the agent of days who is clearly God, asked the Son of Man, in this case, Jesus, to sit at his right hand, which is the place of equal honor, there's a consubstantiation, and dignity. So either way, Jesus persecutors clearly understood what he meant there. Yeah. That he was making a strong claim. And it's so odd that we, in our own kind of epoch and error, seem to discount the response of those with whom Jesus is speaking to say, well, they misunderstood what he was saying. Yeah. That we, some reason, have got him right all these years later.
1: Yeah. So, but, you know, we're, we're we've, Time has flied. On flied. Time has flown. Time (laughs) flew. So is our grammar. Time floweth. Um, on this podcast episode, and we're we're gonna run out of time quick. But what what I wanted to do is give my mnemonic device for how to remember proper Christology. Proper. Okay. At least on this side of it, on the Jesus is fully God, and it's John one, Colossians one, Hebrews one, Genesis one. So if you if you string those chapters together. They clearly present that the Son is not only divine, but is fully God in the same way that the Father is. So we right. just talked about John 1.1. 1, 1. Let me turn to Colossians 1 real quick. Um, so Colossians 1... He's talking about it and starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You could probably add um, parts of Romans to fill out that through him and for him. Um, Flip over to Hebrews 1. Uh, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Skipping down a little bit, it says, For which of my sons did the an- or which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Um, and then it goes on to talk about verse ten, You laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, they will all wear out like a garment. You, uh, like a robe, they'll be changed. So the, each th- all three of those are reflecting in a slightly different way on the son's role in the in the eternal act or in the et- at the act of creation. So then you flip over and you take them to Genesis 1. And I've done this with Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'll say, okay, so in John 1, the word, you know, God creates through the word. In Colossians 1, he creates through and for the sun, who's the firstborn of all creation in Hebrews. God says, God says to the sun and of the sun, you laid the foundations of the earth. And then I go to Hebrew uh, Genesis one and I say, where's the sun in all of this? And you know, they look at it, they go, I'm not sure. And I say, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We'll come back to that in a, a month or two when we talk about Nematomachianism. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Well, flip back over to John one. And what does it say about Jesus? He was light and in him, there was no darkness. So, so you take those four passages and like I said, you can fill out parts of it with parts of Romans, or you can fill out parts of it with other elements in the new Testament or the Proverbs or parts of the Psalms. But what you have is you have a clear picture in the New Testament that the son is active in creation and all things are created through him. You know, all things, the foundations were laid by him. And then in Genesis 3, you take that back and say, see, from the very first chapter of the scripture, we have God working by, by his word and through his spirit. And right there, you have the doctrine of the Trinity front and center. So right. it's a handy mnemonic: Genesis, John, One, Colossians, One, Hebrews, One, Genesis, One, um, and it just it lays it all out there. And and to be honest with you, you know, to talk about Romans, One, I don't think you can actually refute that unless you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Right. It's it's on the plain face of the text. There's no deep exegesis involved in it. It's right there. So unless you have a vested interest in denying the divinity of Christ, there's really no there's really no basis in the text to do so.
0: I'm glad you pulled in Hebrews one, because I've been thinking as we've been talking that one of the dangers of Arianism or any any tendency toward that direction is that it really jettisons any hope of real divine revelation modeled in practical living. And it removes, I think, the qualifications of our high priest. Right. So in Hebrews 1, like you quoted already, if God was speaking to his people in these last days, we would probably expect, or maybe we should expect, we're reading that for the first time, after we get this lengthy thesis of that first two verses, that there would be some kind of significant quotation from the spoken words of Jesus, but right. there isn't. Instead, where the words of the prophets were the message from God in the past, the Son Himself is God's final revelation. Right. So there's this emphasis on the identity of Jesus as the divine Son of God, and that makes Him the perfect and final revelation of God. So Jesus did not just speak God's words, that's what the prophets did. He actually is God's word. And right. that is the big difference, because basically we're not saying the same thing. And we speak to people that have kind of an Aryan bent.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that that's important because, you know, we, we've touched on EFS, we talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, liberal Christianity is a whole other arena. And, you know, we kind of joked about like accidentally saying Arminianism instead of Arianism, but, but if we're being really honest, the insufficiency of the atonement in Arminian theology to actually accomplish the salvation of God's people, right? right? Think about the analogy they use. God opens the jail door and shows you how to walk out. Well, that's exactly what people like Arius said. So I think that that's a really, really great insight that you brought to the table. When you're talking about anytime we reduce the efficacy or the sufficiency of the atonement, we're bringing Christ down from his exalted state. Because what we're saying is that um, if Christ cannot accomplish the atonement, actually accomplish the atonement, well, what kind of God is that? So, so Air, you know, Arminians, um, they're trying to postulate, you know, th- to be charitable. They're trying to balance out what they see as free will and, and, and the free choice of the creature. But what they do is they say they have, we have a God that can't guarantee salvation. We have a God who can't, can't bring it to fruition if we won't let him. And so they, they've taken God and made him fallible. Well, infallible okay. is a divine attribute. So if you make him fallible, he's not God anymore. Um, and so, so we we have to be careful not to do that. And I think as Reformed Christians, we can fall into that trap too if we're not careful, because we you know we might elevate an aspect of, and this is where it comes back to divine simplicity. We might elevate an aspect of God's being. To a state that's greater than the others. So the first one that comes to mind, and it's—I think it's probably the Two Thieves' fault because they have it on their intro now. So I hear it once a week. Is R.C. Sproul's famous uh, quote that God is not just holy, but He's holy, 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 and so holiness is the central attribute of God. Well, what you what you've done there is you've made holiness more fundamental than God himself. And so holiness is God and holiness is what makes God, God. Well, once right. you extend that to, to the sun, now you've, now you've basically postulated that the sun is a creature because something has made him, to be God, namely the holiness that is more fundamental than he is. So that, that's not to say that R.C. Sproul is an Arian or anything silly like that, but Reformed thinkers are not immune to this kind of mistake where we, if we jettison divine simplicity, even accidentally, Right. We've got people like um, John Frame who are saying that, well, God is mutable in an immutable sort of way. Well, that's just rank incoherency. Right. right. Either he's mutable or he's not mutable. Um, or Scott Oliphant, who wants to say that God takes on covenantal properties. Well, some of those covenantal properties he takes on, he takes on in eternity past. In the Pactum Salutis, according to Elephant, so we have these reformed, quote-unquote, reformed thinkers. Not to mention people like Ware and Grudem and Stran and Wilson, who I would say are outside of the reformed way of thinking, who are straight out denying divine simplicity by chain, you know, by adding a plurality of natures. The reformed world is not immune to this and we have to be cautious that if we maintain that the son truly is fully and eternally eternally is important right it's not just that the son is consubstantial with the father he's co-eternal with the father and so if we if we maintain that properly things like eternal functional subordination they fall apart as the sort of ridiculousness that they are or things like covenantal properties. Well, God can't become something because he eternally always is what he was. And we know that because the son is eternally always what he is. He is what he is. It's not that he is what he was, or he is what he will be. He is what he is and is, is all there is in the Lord. I mean, I, I, I'm struggling for the language, but it's. I get you. You know, if, if we maintain that properly, it, right. it guards us from that. And you know, sometimes we do theology defensively, and that's okay. But Arianism is really needs to be addressed offensively. We need to go after it because we need the way to defeat Arianism is not to defend against their claims; it's to counterclaim against what they're claiming. The way we prove that the sun is not a creature is not to show how incoherent it is to have a divine creature. It's to prove that the sun is eternally divine. Um, So, I mean, I I think we could keep going in circles on this. Thankfully, Arianism is kind of one of the more simple, straightforward heresies to understand. Uh, But it does have all these other weird tendrils that end up in strange places like divine simplicity. It
0: does. And this sometimes comes back to, we so badly want to take the scriptures and put them in the right place that we want to literally interpret the scriptures, but do so in a way in which that literal interpretation is the type of interpretation that's required. So for instance, we've been speaking at length about saying in the beginning, and of course, the whole creation narrative starts with God saying, let there be light. Obviously, when there exists nothing, there's no voice box, there's no air, there's no actual sound, but it doesn't right. make it any less real what's trying to be expressed there. There's a meaning that's being conveyed. So, like, Arius didn't really leave any extant writings, but I would imagine that he would have seized upon verses like Colossians 1 in terms of, like, the firstborn. Right. But, of course, that's like a technical term that has more to do with inheritance. So, so to get back to your point, like, when we, we gravitate toward things like holy, 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 we think we're doing the best possible thing for God, and that is lifting him high in this one categorization but what we end up doing is forsaking the others for one and then that does lead to a type of hierarchy and that can be a problem and we don't mean to but we should just kind of be i like what you said about in terms of going on offense i think the best offense is just continuing to be close to the scripture interpreting it as literally as it requires and doing so where we're just teaching the full counsel of god to ourselves perhaps first in our reading in our prayer in good and acquiring good resources. And that is the best offense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, we've got question cast coming up next week. So what is that glorious phone number in case someone has a question?
0: So leave us a voicemail with a question. And that number is six, zero, seven, four, 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 two, seven, six, seven. Bros. Bros. Let me ask you a question before we close this sucker out. Do you know who I find to be a very unexpected and kind of strange historical person with Aryan
1: tendencies? There's almost an infinite number of people that could be.
0: (laughs) Is there somebody in your mind? Because I feel like maybe you're thinking of somebody. No. So this, I, I came across this like a while ago, but this surprised me. Isaac Watts.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Had like some severe Aryan tendencies. And that, I just, with like all the you know hymns that he wrote it's kind of strange.
1: Yeah, unfortunately Isaac Watts kind of flew off the handle towards the end of his he life. He did. Um he kind of bought into some Socinianism um that that challenge I mean he ended up I think he ended up in like a full-throated denial of the trinity. Um, yeah. It's really it sad. He got crazy. He um, got crazy. Yeah, which I mean that just underscores proper theology is important but proper theology without piety doesn't it can't save you, it can't protect right. you. Right. So, yeah, think Isaac about Watts that. The next time you sing joy to the world. Thanks for bringing us down on the worst, (laughs) most depressing possible note we could ever. I I think you just convinced me to be an exclusive psalmist. (laughs) Who knew? I need to go take some
0: Advil after that. This is what you get when you hang out with us. So make sure you get some questions in so we can fill up that podcast for next week.
1: Yes. And other than that, you know the drill. I do. And before we say our famous tagline, stay tuned, because we have some really exciting stuff coming in September. So that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, we do. But we have some really cool stuff coming up that we're pretty stoked about. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.